we're going through a series right now on grief. And what I want to reflect on is just a couple of verses today, but these are a, a, a couple of verses that I believe can drastically change your life. What I want to talk about today is how to live your life Jesus' way. When Jesus came and spoke to the culture he was speaking to, some of the words that he said completely just blew their minds away. Jesus is completely counter-cultural to what the world feeds us every single day. His words remain true even to this day. Reflecting on what we see, what, what our needs are, and people say, this is what you need to be happy. This is what you need to live a successful life. This is what you need to, whatever, insert here. And Jesus' words kind of completely turn that around. And one of these things we've been reflecting on is, is the power of grief. And in our culture, we do a very poor, poor, poor job at simply lamenting and, and grieving in general. We talked about the last two years of COVID and how they've been insane. And no matter what, if you've been alive the last couple of years, you have something to grieve over. Maybe something maybe you define as small or maybe you lost somebody, someone very, very close to you, a, a family member, a relative, a friend. Instead of sweeping that grief under the rug, which is oftentimes what culture says, oftentimes culture says, be a man, <gasps> suck it up, you know, don't, don't let those tears fall down your face. It's, it's a sign of weakness. I believe that grief is an immense sign of strength. If, if you actually, and we talked about this last week, if you actually have experienced weeping in front of somebody that you know, it's, I, I don't know about you, I get highly embarrassed. Does anybody else like that? Is anyone else like me? People are like, somebody's seen me with puffy eyes and like, I, I don't look presentable, but it's a very vulnerable place and, and it's a very hard place to be. And so we want to begin to learn, as Jesus will teach, to be counter-cultural. The culture says grief is weak. Jesus says, no, grief shows strength. And in fact, he will say, blessed are those who mourn, which we'll reflect on in, in a minute. But we all know that we're inundated with things that the world is throwing at us every single day. You need this. You need that to be happy. This is how you have a successful life. And again, Jesus turns all of that on its head. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, Scripture says this, We know that we are children of God. Everybody say, I am a child of God. Say it again. Say, I am a child of God. So it says, We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Wow. That's big time stuff. Let me read that again. We know that we, for the followers of Jesus, are the children of God and that the world around us is under control of the evil one. Do, do you understand what that is saying? So when, when we're inundated with these things that the world is saying, oh, this is what will make you happy, a newer house, a bigger, a nicer house, a newer car, a car that has this or that, or a job that pays you this amount, or a, or a retirement account that's this big, that will bring, or, or, or whatever it is. And the words of Jesus completely turn that narrative around. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you. Everybody say transform. Let God transform you into a new person. Ready? By changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So we have this narrative, what we believe of, oh, grief is bad, pain is bad. We want to avoid it at all costs. And Jesus completely turns that around. Let God transform your mind, changing the way that you think. The hard part is this takes immense discipline and a lot of work because you have to go through a lot of pain. And you have to be ready for that. Most studies will tell you that after you hear something new or a new concept or an idea, you have approximately 48 or 72 hours to actually make a, a change in your life pattern or else everything will just completely go back to normal. You'll, you'll totally forget about it, right? They say that about uh, uh, preaching. The day, the, the day after, Monday, you remember like 50%. Tuesday, you remember 30%. I'm kind of making up statistics, but you know what I'm saying. I don't remember what I preached on two weeks ago, you know what I'm saying? So I'm assuming you don't. But after you hear a new concept or a new idea, you have approximately two to three days to make a significant change in your life to change up the pattern of how you've always been or else you'll just click back into your normal life. So last week we talked about grief and, and allowing grief to draw us closer and nearer to God and, and allowing this concept of, of pain and even suffering to, to allow us to come closer to God because it makes us realize that we're not going to be on this planet, this rock, forever and will be in the presence of God with no more pain and no more suffering. Scripture says he will wipe away every tear from, from our eyes. So, so we hear that, but then we think about it. But again, it's a very courageous step to say, okay, this is the way that I lived my life, sometimes for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 30 40, 50 years, and now you have to completely do a 180. For the majority of your life, you may have said, well, pain is bad, grief is is, is bad. Shame and guilt come along with grief. And just to begin the process, and it's tough. And the challenge is, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. You need the community of the church. You need somebody that can walk with you. Maybe you, you would like to pursue a counselor. All those are very, very healthy things that I would highly recommend. And begin to process these things so you can draw closer in your relationship with God. To stop sweeping all of this pain and all of this, this grief underneath the rug and actually facing it head on. Being in control of your anxiousness and, and your anxiety. Being still. Scripture says, be still and know that you are God. Sometimes I think we're a little bit too busy. We're going too fast. Oftentimes what we do, I think about when we talk about grief and pain, is to try to, to get rid of it or, or ignore it. We just fill our schedules up with as many things as we possibly can. 
We binge something on Netflix. We do this instead of just being still. We're afraid to be still because of the grief we might experience. So we look at what the world teaches and then turn that around and see what Jesus teaches. My conviction is I believe and I pray and I hope that there's actually a difference that people can see between people who are followers of Jesus and people who are of the world. And my concern is I don't think those are very discernible right now. Is that the right word? Uh, people can't, can't see the difference. You understand what I'm saying? And when we talk about that, even automatically we're like, oh, that's like rules and regulations, right? No. People say, like, what? Like, why are, you, why are you selling this thing? Or why are you giving all this back to the church? Because I believe in the mission of, of the church, capital C Church. I believe in, in the command that Jesus says to go out and, and make disciples. Being open with our pain and our grief. People say, like, why? Like, what are you doing? It's like, I, I believe that this world is going to come to an end someday for everybody. And I believe there's something greater than that. Instead of just like, oh, we've got to fix everything. Everything's going to be better. We're, we're going to make a perfect world where uh, there's going to be a perfect government system. Raise your hand if you think there will ever be a perfect government system. Never. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's never going to happen. That's why we have faith and, and hope and trust in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. So here we go. Matthew chapter 5. I just want to reflect just on a couple of, of, of verses. Jesus had, had just been tempted. He's just calling his first disciples again. This is kind of the peak in Jesus' vocational ministry almost. This isn't like nobody hated him yet. You know, he hadn't even had any conflict with these Sadducees, the religious guys, the fundamentalists. He's just teaching people, and these droves of people are now coming to Jesus. And as they're coming to Jesus, he, he teaches them this fire sermon in Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Someone referred to it as the Beatitudes. And that's where we're, we're going to begin today. So again, Jesus has this crowd following him. The people pleaser within me thinks that when you have this crowd of people following you, what Jesus should think of is, what can I say to make all of these people happy so more and more people come and follow me? But the crazy thing is, the words that Jesus says would completely blow their mind. They're like, wait, what? We've been taught this our entire life, and then Jesus just completely turns all of that on its head and says, no, this is what it's all about. In my mind, I'm like, well, that would drive a lot of people away. But more and more people came to follow him and made a lot of Pharisees and, and fundamentalists really upset. But people wanted what Jesus was teaching because Jesus teaches the truth. Oftentimes, Jesus doesn't tell us what we want to hear. Jesus tells us what we need to hear. Oh, that hurts, though, sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> that hurts. So here we go, Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. So one day, as Jesus says, saw the crowds gathering. So there's all these people gathering around him. It says, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. I just, Jesus always just maintains this levelness about him, this level-headedness, never loses it. Even if we think about when Jesus is going into the temple with these whips driving over tables, we think of that as like a a rage or like he, un, uncontrollable. He was in, in control. In fact, if you read the scripture, the day before he was in the temple witnessing everything that was going on. So it was calculated almost to an extent. Jesus is never out of control of his emotions. 
So he has all of these people gathering around him. In my mind, that would be an anxious spot to be in. What am I going to do? You know, Jesus, his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. And we're just going to reflect on just a couple of these. And again, these are just still, even to this day, they just blow my mind. So this crowd gathers around Jesus. Jesus sits them down. And the first thing that Jesus says to this crowd following him is this. As they're like, oh, this is Jesus. I've heard his teachings are great. And Jesus says off the bat, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. They're like, wait, 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 hold up. So you're telling me that my entire life I have been pursuing wealth and fortune and fame, and you're telling me that that was all a lie. Jesus says, yeah, that was all a lie. You're living for the wrong reasons. Jesus says, God blesses those who are poor. That's not saying we all have to be poor. What's the point here? Second piece, and realize their need for him. The temptation of wealth in our country is very prevalent. What is the temptation of wealth? The temptation of wealth is that you don't need God. The temptation of wealth is that you don't need a savior. And if you're living in the United States of America, pretty much no matter on your income, you're in the top some percentage of the world. We have the temptation to say, we don't need God, we can fix it ourselves. Let's just dump more money on. The problem is always money. It's always money. Typically, it's not even the problem most of the time. The temptation of wealth is to say, we don't need God. Look at at what we've done. We have these beautiful neighborhoods. Look at these these majestic towers that we've built, these sky-rise buildings Look at the infrastructure, the bridges and the roads and this and that and our, and our food programs and all this. Like, look how amazing we are. We can do this all on our own. We all have retirement accounts and we all have this social security and we're all going to be fine and we got this on our own. The temptation of, the, of that is that we don't need God. And what are we taught in our country? It's not necessarily a bad thing, something to be aware of. I mean, I grew up in the public school system here in Salem. Do whatever you want. Whatever you desire, you can do. If you just work hard and this, you can, you can follow your dreams, and you could be an actor if you want to be an actor. It didn't work out for me. You can do whatever you want to do. You have a house. You'll have retirement. You'll have vacations and this. If you just work hard and this, and all of your, uh, as Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite would say, all of your wildest dreams will come true. <laughs> Had to throw that in there. It's a great, great film if you haven't seen it. Salem classic right there. So this is, this is what we're taught. This is what you need to be successful. And we have people who are on the news or interviewed and write books just because they have zillions of dollars. We don't value character in this country, I guess. We just value money. And we define success as not character, but on how many boats you own, I guess. Like, where, like where, where does this level come from? Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. 
Solomon writes these words, one of the wealthiest men who has ever lived. He said this, So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, he said, I will take. I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all of my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So you live your life. You might sacrifice your character. You might sacrifice your family, the time you spend with your kids, and you're on your deathbed with bazillions of dollars, and your family hates your guts. You reflect back and you're like, I should have followed the, the message of Jesus. God blesses those who are poor. Now, we can also reflect on what does it mean to be hashtag blessed. This is my favorite definition of, of blessed. I read this past week. Blessed means the ultimate well-being of distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So when we're talking about, oh, I'm blessed, it's not like, oh, I have immense wealth or I have whatever it is. It's that, listen, we're, the spiritual joy that we will have salvation in the kingdom of God with, with no more pain and, and no more suffering, and that is how we want to live our lives. So people see like, oh, like, why are you living below your means? Because I believe in the mission, the vision of Jesus and, and of the church. I'm going to live like the words I, I believe in. No more of this talk this way and act this way. We want to look at the, again, these are words that are countercultural even for today. Completely countercultural. You look in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 3, where the church is just beginning and people are coming together and it says that they're selling all that they have. Some people are, are selling their probably potentially generational fields that they own. They're selling whatever they have and they bring it to the, to the church. They say, we believe in this. That is completely and instinctively countercultural. The temptation is hard. The reward is great. The temptation is hard. The reward is great. The temptation to say, oh, I got this. The, the security. I, we want to take control of our own lives. That's not saying be irresponsible. Be responsible with what God has entrusted to you. But also, live in the faith that you believe in. Remember the words of Jesus that God blesses those who are poor. And again, realize their need for him. Not your need for, quote, success. Not your need for the American dream, not your need for a healthy 401k and this, whatever it is. Your need for him. So Jesus has this group of people around him. And, and I think if I'm in this crowd, I'm like, what? This is crazy. Like, we've never heard these words before. Jesus says, God blesses those who are poor, realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then he says in verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, completely countercultural, even today. Again, we think about our culture, it's grief is a sign of weakness. I believe grief is a sign of strength. 
And the key there is the last sentence. God blesses those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. Now, when Jesus came and died on the cross for you, it doesn't say in the Bible that when he dies on the cross, he's going to take away all of the earthly pain. And the beauty is that in this life, Jesus walks along with us through the pain, doesn't he? And we believe in in the truth of what Scripture teaches. Jesus didn't die on the cross to take away our earthly pain, but he does walk us through it. Right before the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the, the temptations in the desert. God allows Jesus to be tempted. Jesus is starving almost to death, and the devil tempts him, and Jesus rebukes the devil. And then it says, uh, the devil says in verse 8, chapter 4, the devil took Jesus to a very high peak, showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, this is like the American dream. (laughs) I will give it all to you, Satan says, if you will kneel down and worship me. And Jesus responds, get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord God and serve him only. And verse 11, the devil went away. What happens? Jesus is in immense pain and potentially grief. and says angels came and took care of Jesus. They didn't take the pain away, but they came and they comforted Jesus. Jesus doesn't necessarily take your earthly pain away. He takes your eternal damnation away. Thank you, Dean. But he does not take your earthly pain away. But what does scripture say? Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Does that say he fixes it all? No, for the pain that we experience in this world today, but he heals the brokenhearted. He, he walks along with you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties upon him. It doesn't say he takes them away. He says, give them to him. Why? Because he, he cares for you. All the the family drama you're walking through right now, we all have it. I do too. All the grief that you've been avoiding for the last decades of your life, give those to Jesus. Say, God, let this pain and grief draw me closer in my relationship with you. Why? Because at the end of the day, as it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, one of the most beautiful verses and most encouraging verses in the entire Bible, which is funny because it comes in Revelation, which usually people think of doom and gloom and the apocalypse, the end of the world. But the beauty is Revelation was written from John to the church going through immense persecution, and it is a book about hope. What's the hope? That in the end, Jesus wins. We know the ending. And it says in Revelations 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. It says all of these things will be gone forever. Raise your hand if that encourages you today. That's good stuff, isn't it? That's good stuff. At the end, there will be no more pain, death, sorrow, or crying. Those things will be gone forever. But while we are here, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of sin all around us. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of grief. What does Jesus say? But God blesses those who are poor. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What is the the, the peace that we need to take away? Realize our need for God. What does grief do? What does pain do? It makes us realize our need for God. 
And again, here's the challenging piece when we talk about these things that are completely countercultural to us. Many of us today still emotionally respond as we were children. As in, what you experience between the ages of zero and seven forms kind of like the foundation that you build upon your life. And the way that you deal with grief as an adult is oftentimes the way that you responded to grief as a child. The crazy thing is about this is that it's almost as if it's as natural as, as breathing and blinking. You don't think about it. Because if you just reflect, I mean, it makes sense. You're growing up and you learn how to respond to grief. You learn maybe to sweep it under the rug. Maybe you learn that grief is bad. Maybe you grew up with uh, men don't cry. Maybe you grew up in a household that people just never weep and you just kind of, the, the parents talked about uh, hard things in their bedroom and then they live perfect lives in front. I, I don't know what it is. Only you do. But what you experienced as a child is now what you bring as an adult. And oftentimes the way you respond as an adult is the way you responded as a child. So again, you've heard some of my story before, but I tend to, and I have tended to, run from pain and and run from grief. And you know what's fascinating is I can remember very clearly in my life a moment where I literally ran away from from grief because I felt so much shame. In the year 2000, my grandmother died from ALS disease, one of the worst diseases on planet Earth. Over about 18 months, she went from extremely healthy 60-year-old, running on the beach in Lincoln City, and then it just slowly kills you. First, you can't run anymore. You can walk, and then you you can't walk, and you have to go in a wheelchair, and then you can't move your legs at all. Then you can't move your arms at all. Then you can't speak anymore, and then eventually you can't eat anymore to be fed through tube, and then eventually you you die. It's, It's horrendous. And after my grandmother passed away, I was 10 years old, and in my family system growing up, we avoided grief altogether. Um, I don't remember crying more than a handful of times in front of my family or somebody else in my lifetime. So still to this day, crying in front of anybody, even in front of my wife, I have to like force myself to. And I'm, I'm a crier, if I'm honest with you. Any chick flick gets me off. I'm just like, ah, all this stuff. Ask my wife. It's, it's just the facts. She just looks over me and it's just like, ah, oh, whatever. So I remember specifically as a, as a 10-year-old, after my grandmother's funeral, we're at my aunt's or my grandfather's house, and we're all just having like a potluck type lunches together as a family. And I was just overcome with immense grief and pain from losing my grandmother. She was the best, like the most stereotypical grandmother ever. She's incredible. She used to take me to Toys R Us on Lancaster for my birthday, and we would walk in and she'd say, Stephen, I will buy you one thing from this store. Get whatever you want. I don't care about the price. It can be huge. It can be small. I'll buy you one thing, anything you want in the entire store. Man and living. That is like a child's dream. Incredible. Incredible. So a phenomenal relationship with my grandmother. She passes away. I remember as a 10-year-old kid, uh, my family's around, and I'm just overcome with grief. And she wrote me a letter and gave me some stuffed bears. And I remember reading through that letter to a 10-year-old, and I just lost it. And what I did, because what do I do? And my system, growing up, I run from grief. So I ran to the bathroom, slammed the door, and I wept by myself as a 10-year-old for like 15 minutes. And then I tried to like, you know, wipe all the tears away and suck it up and be a man. And then I went outside and tried to laugh and make jokes and, and do whatever. So that's my family system. And what I have to overcome and know is that the pain is actually, again, a good thing. 
Why? Because it makes me realize my need for God. It's not saying that we sulk in our sorrows, but it does mean we acknowledge it and we, and we grieve. And being able to be aware of that, and so then when I experience grief and pain today, I can weep in front of people and I'm not like curled up in a ball in the fetal position under my desk, right? My question is to you is what system did you grow up with? What are the challenges you are going to face now as an adult? Are you running from pain? Did you have the family system where you sweep it under the rug? Did you have a family system where you just avoid conflict? And my family couldn't deal with conflict almost at all. And now, you know what's funny is I grew up as the youngest child of three, and in my childhood world, I was someone that brought unity, and I brought jokes to make things better, and now I'm a pastor. It's really worked out really well for me, <laughs> bringing people together with humor and things like this. That's what I grew up with. So my question is, just reflect and be aware of what you were raised with, your family system. What is it? And what courageous and bold step can you take to further your relationship with God? To draw nearer to Him. Again, part of my cycle is a avoid, a avoiding grief, avoiding pain. But what does Jesus teach? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed the, the meek, blessed the, the poor who realize their, their need for Him. Jesus says, verse 5, blessed are those who, who are humble and they will inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Again, these are completely countercultural. So what is as natural to you as breathing and blinking? What emotional system did you inherit as a child that you now have as, as an adult? And how can you be aware of that and use that? It's, it's not necessarily a shame or a bad thing. It's just to be aware of for yourself and say, what's going on within me? And how through it can I challenge myself to draw me closer in my relationship with God? To be who Jesus calls you to be, to act as Jesus calls you to act. To grieve as Jesus, is, as Jesus grieves, to love as Jesus loves, and to comfort as Jesus comforts. And I'll close with this. You have 48 to 72 hours. That's hard, isn't it? You're going to be thinking about this on your drive home, and maybe tomorrow as you're going to work, like, what, what was my system? What, do I avoid pain? Do I avoid grief? What do I, like, what do, I do? What, how can I give my life more to God? How, how can God be working within me and my system, and how can I use that to draw me closer to God? And what changes can I make to really push myself outside of my comfort zone? Again, that is a courageous and a terrifying step that we want to do together as a church community. Amen? So I'm going to pray, and our team's going to come, and we're going to close in worship together. And I just want to encourage you to spend this time just in reflection as we worship. And team, you guys can come up. Just as we reflect, as you reflect on your, the system that, that you grew up in, find somebody uh, that you trust, you know, maybe someone within the church. If you'd like to schedule an appointment with me, you can go to our website, scroll to the bottom, and there's a button you say, meet with Pastor Stephen, fill it out. I'd be honored to set up a, an appointment with you. Then we can just reflect, because I believe this is how we truly know ourselves deeper and can grow in our relationship with God together. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer, and we're going to worship together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for what you've given us, for Jesus' death and his resurrection. 
I pray we, we live out these words of Jesus that are completely countercultural, even today. That we will do what we teach. That we will take bold steps. I pray you will reveal to us some of these things that we've brought with us to adult life from our childhood. Maybe we avoid pain. Maybe we avoid conflict. Whatever it is, we want to give that over to you. We want to be who you've called us to be. Take courageous and bold steps that you can work in our lives, that the gospel will move. Our mission that people experience the gospel and, and live it out. That we will be a movement of Jesus in the Willamette Valley and beyond. Be with us as we continue to learn about ourselves and grow in you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. So spend this last song as a reflection as we worship together.
church. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us, that he defeated death, that we have hope in this world. I pray that we allow this pain and grief to draw us closer to you and that we can begin to be aware of what we inherited as children now taken to adulthood. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. We love you, church. We'll see you back here next week at 1030. And men, see you Saturday morning at 9 a.m.